Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Hey, and thanks for listening in to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I am pleased to be joined by Reverend Dr. Jose Francisco Morales Torres. Hello. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for your time today. And uh, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but we're both home with kids and families and yep. I don't know about you. Do you have pets, dogs, a cat, anything? We, we uh, we had a pet that just uh, went to be with the pet lord uh, a couple months ago. Oh, I'm sorry and to so, hear that. But yeah, yeah, but but we're we're hanging on. But we have a, a child at home that's never not at mm-hmm. home. So uh, I'm sure you and I can relate uh, on parenting from home these days. Yeah, for some reason, uh, my child feels the need right now to be running circles through my office. So for our <laughs> listeners, please understand this is COVID. Uh, we're we're ending November right in the midst of crazy COVID. So yeah. uh, it is what it is. We're going to no, make the best beautiful. of it. That's Thanks, beautiful. Jose, though, for your time. Yes. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, Jose, tell, tell our listeners a little about, about yourself. Oh, you know what? Let me first – I always almost forgot. Let me read some of your bio. Uh, so Jose is a professor of Latinx studies or Latinx studies, as I understand, at uh, Chicago Theological School. Is that is that right? The, yeah, Theological Seminary. Seminary. I knew I was saying that wrong. Um, he's a historical and a comparative theologian. He places historical voices into conversation with historically marginalized voices within and beyond the Christian tradition, offering radical rearticulations of the affirmations of faith for today's realities. His research includes comparative and contextual approaches to historical theology, the development of Christian doctrines, Jewish-Muslim-Christian encounters in medieval Philosophy and Theology, Liberation Theologies, and the History of Latin America and Caribbean uh, Philosophy. Oh, you have a you have a book coming out, which you can plug here a little bit. And uh, I know Jose is uh, for a time he was what's the word my judicatory authority? What's what would you say that <laughs> regional minister? I, I used to say yeah. a bishop with no bishop powers whatsoever. Right, right. Uh, Jose is ordained like me within the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. And for a time, he served as the regional minister uh, of the central Rocky Mountain region of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. So welcome. Uh, now, Thank what you. else would you like our folks to know about you? Um, you know, uh, I think I think you kind of covered it. You know, I'm teaching at Chicago. Uh, this is my first full year here. I taught at Claremont School of Theology in California before that. Um, and before doing my uh, PhD work, I was in doing ministry in the church for 10 years from yeah. uh, uh, ch- church, congregational church, advocacy and community organizing, education, and then, of course, as you mentioned, middle judicatory, so a church bureaucrat, if you will. And I, and I wear the yeah. badge, uh, whether, whether I like to wear it or not. I was a church bureaucrat for a while, so that's part of my portfolio yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah, middle judicatory. That was the word I was looking for. There you go. Fancy word. Tell our yeah, tell our listeners if you know, if you would a little bit about your your faith journey, kind of 
um, how you came to the faith and how that how your journey of faith has grown or developed since then. Sure. Uh, well, you know, I'm I'm actually I, I think it's becoming less and less rare, but I was born in the late seventies. Uh, being born in mm-hmm. the late seventies in Latin America and the Caribbean, and for me to be able to say that I've never been Catholic is actually hmm. an oddity. Uh, now, like I said, I think it's becoming less and less so. Uh, places like Puerto Rico and Brazil uh, and mm-hmm. other places where you have a strong sort of Protestant uh, presence. Uh, but I grew up Pentecostal, and my mm-hmm. parents were not just pastors, they were missionaries. So you and I have talked about the the hard work that it takes to plant the church. Our yeah. parents, my parents helped plant churches in Colombia and Venezuela. Uh, and so I know how rigorous that work is. And so I grew up a PK and an MK, a missionary's kid. Um, mm-hmm. And we lived, we first moved to the United States, continental United States, uh, in mm-hmm. 83 when we moved to a little town of Lorain, Ohio, which is close to Cleveland, Ohio. And from there okay. to Chicago, Chicago was my longest stay. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm Chicagoan. So uh, I like to say that. Yeah. Uh, my blood yeah. is, my blood's from Puerto Rico, but my heart's from Chicago. I, I like to say. Um, Southside, right? Yeah, Southside all day. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so if if there's any Cub fans listening in, I don't have time for you today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I grew up in the church and. Yeah, I, I, you know, like anybody raised in the church, sometimes you're a little closer to the church than other times, but generally, yeah. generally kept some commitment, even if it was a minimal mm-hmm. commitment, I kept some commitment. Um, we can attribute that to a lot of things, but generally grew up Pentecostal, went to an evangelical school, and then went to a liberal seminary. So uh, within this sort of North American Protestantism, I really touched in. Mm-hmm on all three major streams, uh, which is Pentecostal, evangelical, and liberal. And I like to say what I say about the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible, that I'm not a supersessionist. So I don't think that the the Old Testament is done away with by the New Testament. In the same way, I don't think my evangelical years did away my Pentecostal years, and my liberal Mm. seminary did away with anything before that. I've actually taken all of that with me. And all of that yeah. plays a role in who I am theologically as a Christian. So I've had that sort of broad experience. Uh, at some point in seminary, I tried to stay connected to this Pentecostal church I grew up in. Uh, and I'm not here to sort of badmouth anybody, but I'll just say that um, as I went further along in this very liberal, progressive theological education, mm-hmm. some doors were closed to me in that Pentecostal tradition I was a part of. And the disciples mm-hmm. of Christ then opened the door for me. And so I've been yeah. in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ since about 2004. Uh, and it's my church home now. Um, I appreciate the flexibility um, to think, the flexibility of thought, yeah. being that I am a Pentecostal, evangelical, liberal. And now because I've studied so mm-hmm. much historical theology, I, I have deep appreciation for the historic traditions, Orthodox, Catholic, Churches of the East, uh, like Assyrian Church and Martoma Church. So I have a a growing appreciation. Uh, The Ethiopian Church is one of the oldest uh, communions um, out there. So uh, I I appreciate that could be part of a tradition where all these things 
can be part of who I am. And, and I'm not, there's not these hard, rigid lines put on what I can, where I can explore theologically and where I can. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I, I'm a disciple, yeah. um, not a very clean, clear cut disciple, but I'm a disciple and I like, I like the flexibility that my ecclesial home offers me. So that's a little bit about who I like I am. that word flexibility. Yeah. Uh, Jose, I appreciate your, your word about your kind of comparison of not being a super secessionist, you know, when it comes to old Testament, and new Testament in the same way in regards to your faith journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know I've kind of shared that struggle as someone who grew up fundamentalist. Like, what do I, you know, I've thought in the past, like, what do I do with my past? And I think that's a struggle for a lot of people who've grown up, uh, who have found a new, um, a new way of faith. And I think, yeah. uh, I imagine you'd probably agree with this, that it's not super healthy just to write off a section of our lives. Yeah. Uh, so I, I appreciate fact, your thoughts I don't think there. It, yeah. I don't think it's possible. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Because I, I do think that spirituality and theology, which is always sort of a lived commitment, is so embedded mm-hmm. in us that anything, if we try to violently uproot, we do damage to mm-hmm. ourselves. Um, yeah, I, I do think there's sifting that needs to happen. I think there's ultimately there's these moments in that sort of theological deliberation where you kind of have to put your foot down and say, I can't go beyond this point, or I can't, yeah, I can't endorse this anymore. But but mm-hmm. it's still it's still part of who you are. I still have a sense yeah. in which we can have bodily experiences of the divine. I've learned that from the Pentecostal mm-hmm. tradition. Um, I think evangelical tradition, um, I think they revere scripture. And while I revere God and not scripture, I do think Mm -hmm. this sort of going to scripture at every turn, which evangelicals do or at least claim to do, and we can debate how much they do that or not. um, I think that that's central as well. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. there's some pieces of, I won't even say my former self, because these former selves aren't former. They're still here. Yeah. They're still operating. But these earlier selves, I guess, yeah. Um, yeah. that they still operate, but then it takes a constant kind of negotiating, deliberating at, at every moment how these influences might shape you today. Um, and so, yeah, no, I, I think you're right. You can't, as much as you want to, I think you do more damage than good if you try to go um, too aggressively and trying to cut some of that old stuff. I was thinking about, I just ordered like a new Bible and how much like, I'm going to hold it right now. This is not a video pod, uh, but I just ordered a new Bible and like, I was so excited to get it. And I, in my work bag, I always carry a Bible and that's like, that's a thing from my fundamentalist days that has really stuck with me that I, I feel differently and think vastly different about the Bible, but I still like, like the Bible and having a Bible with me. Yeah, listen, I, I used to, I don't know where, I think I lost it during the move or move to summer. I used to carry a small little vial of anointing oil, and that's from my Pentecostal oh, upbringing. Yeah. And so this notion where, you know, uh, let's pray about this, um, mm-hmm. which I think on the left, sometimes we overdo the reaction to that. Yep. And um, yep. and I actually think we can all do a little more prayer. Um, yeah. You know, we prayer is sort of lifeblood here, and yeah. if we overreact to it, I think I think that's problematic. 
but no, I, I, I hear that. And I would, I would hate for you to be put in a sort of liberal space where that's yeah. frowned upon. Um, right. Carry your Bible. In fact, that new Bible better be floppy within a couple of years. Next time I see you, <laughs> Amen. you better have, yeah, Amen. you know. So no, I, I, yeah, I don't, you know, and mind you, I'm aware of the dangers, the damage yeah. that these uh, earlier selves have done. And I've tried my mm -hmm. best to do right by that. Um, mm -hmm. Seek people out and apologize for my hurtful theology. Uh, yeah. And still, there's still something beautiful in those places that needs to be preserved and reclaimed. Mm -hmm. uh, I meant to m mention this earlier in your kind of introduction, but do you mind uh, talking real quick about your DJ stuff? I think that's a fun part about you. Oh, definitely, definitely. So ever since 1995, so uh, that's been a long time now. Yeah, I've too been, long. I've been a long time. <laughs> So I've been DJing. So I'm a DJ, yeah. and um, I DJ, uh, you may know, house music, techno music. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up in Chicago. Chicago is the birthplace of house music. And so okay. since 95, which was my junior year of high school, uh, so I'm, now I'm giving you my age if you do the math, <laughs> um, I've been DJing, and I DJ currently once a month. There's a radio spot uh, that I do in a radio station in Tulsa where I do the, oh, wow. the last hour of, of my friend's show is a dance mix. And so I do a awesome. house mix uh, once once a month. And so that's that's nice. I mean, that just kind of pulls me away from the the, mm -hmm. the stuffiness of not just a professional life, but of daddying and, yeah. and kind of connects yeah. me to something that's uh, imp important in the sense that it's life-giving to me. Uh, it, it's my creative outlet, and... Uh, it really blesses me in terms of when I get to do that. Um, and I've realized it, it shapes me as a preacher. It yeah. shapes me as a theologian um, in ways that I didn't know uh, until recently. I sat down and talked to somebody about this and hmm. discovered these deep roots um, that are at play in DJing that also shape, for example, my preaching. That's awesome. Uh, Jose, I have to ask a really embarrassing question for me. Uh, what is house music? <laughs> No, no worries. Um, so, so uh, house music is is grows out of disco in some ways, okay. um, but it also grows out of say the new wave movement uh, uh, in uh, in the early '80s. It grows out of some old funk records that were up up more upbeat than slower funk records. So mm -hmm. it it's a, it's a movement marked heavily by a 4-4 count. So boots, 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 you know. Mm -hmm. And then um, and then it's it's it was made for the club. Uh, so it it was never intended for for sort of barber barbershop talk or um, or or smooth coffee time at mm -hmm. the coffee shop. It was made for the club and so it started there's three, really three cities that contribute yeah. to house and techno music, which is Chicago, the birthplace of house, and Detroit, which is the birthplace of techno. And they're very similar, but techno tends to be a little mm -hmm. harder. And then, and then, and in New York, and it's really out of those three cities okay. and the club scenes in those cities, you get this emergence of this genre called house house music. Um, awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll just say like I did, I did. A, I identify Jose as like a, 
a white suburban dad in the full sense of the word. So. <laughs> well, well, I mean, there's house clubs in the suburbs. Uh, <laughs> at least in Chicago, there were. Uh, and so, oh, maybe someday also, when the kids are a little older. <laughs> yeah, but you know, but but it's also an underground scene, right? So yeah, I, you know, it's not. We're not talking top forty here. Uh, so mm. I don't think it should be, quote unquote, embarrassing. I, I think it's there's musical genres I'm just now discovering because they're in some underground scene in Bristol or Paris or yeah. you know, Houston, Texas that we're still discovering. Uh, and yeah. so it's, it's underground movement. I mean, it has in, in Europe is huge in parts of uh, the Southern horn of Africa and the Eastern half of Africa. It's grown in China, uh, Japan, Tokyo, it's, it's grown. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, but it's an underground, uh, genre and it has, um, has a lot of followers elsewhere, but in the U S it's not as big as in other places. Awesome. Uh, I'm curious, I think you kind of alluded to it, but one of the questions I was going to ask you was, uh, something about a spiritual practice that you've developed or might recommend others. And it sounds like music is in a way a spiritual practice. Is that fair? Yeah, no, I, I think, um, I think the, the propensity to create is yeah, a deeply okay. human trait. And yeah. I think uh, this is why I think people who journal, people say, well, I, I like to journal at night. I mean, that's an act of creation. Um, yeah, you're putting okay. um, experiences into words. Um, mm -hmm. So even something as simple as people say, well, I just journal. I'm not very creative. No, you're actually very creative. To be able to, mm. to paint a scene of your life for the day into a few paragraphs or a few pages is actually a very creative uh, skill. And so, um, mm. obviously, I think that the music for me becomes um, uh, producing it, recording it, mixing it is a, is a spiritual practice. But then I'm also kind of an old school cat. Um, mm -hmm. So for me, I think prayer, which I'm actually not good at, uh, I'll, I'll mm. name that up front. Um, mm -hmm. Part of it is I have kind of photographic memory. Okay. Um, so I, I photograph pages of the books I read in my head. And so these pages just never stop flipping in my head yeah and i so can bet yeah so my prayer life it, it hits that but i still attempt it um mm. it's evagrius the 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 monk and author uh of the early church who once said a theologian is one who truly prays and so for me mm. i think my own vocation as a theologian necessitates mm -hmm. that i pray that in uh. order for me to be a theologian in the historic sense, and I do want to claim some of that historicity, then yeah, prayer, yeah. prayer should be part of that. Now, I'm not always very good at it, and yeah. uh, and sometimes I have to read the prayers of others and count those as mm. my own. Uh, and yeah. so as a historical theologian, sometimes I end up reading the prayers of Julian of Norwich or Gregory yeah. of Nyssa instead of writing my mm -hmm. own, but at least I read them and take them as my own. Um, yeah. And so I think that also that kind of prayer life. The other thing that's um, has become a spiritual, I don't think it's inherently a spiritual discipline, but can become one is my wife and I, particularly in quarantine, have been cooking together. And so, oh, yeah. yeah, and so kind of preparing a meal. And I think at least for the Christian tradition, uh, those of us who claim Christ as sort of central to our faith, I mean, mm -hmm. he was all about meals. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. In the, in the Gospel of Luke, for example, as as, as once heard it said, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either eating or talking with his mouth full. Um, <laughs> there's this sort of sense in which yeah. 
for the Christian and you and I are disciples, we do weekly yeah. communion. Um, right. For for disciples, um, every meal is sacred in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so because it's made, made sacred by by the one we claim as Christ who ministered at table. And so the other one has been just my wife and I cooking together has been really exciting, uh, really bonding for us, but also deeply spiritual, I think. That's great. That's great. Um, let's talk about, I'm, I'm excited to talk about your work uh, in, uh, I'm going to say this wrong, but I'll try it. Latinx Christianity. Uh, Latinx, the right? Yeah, yeah it's Latinx Studies and Religion, um, the the title. And, yeah. um, you know, I always start by saying I'm a historical and comparative theologian mm-hmm. because uh, Latinx Studies doesn't really tell you a lot about the methods that I'm using to study Latinx studies, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I, I do Latinx studies through the lens of historical and comparative theology, which is both undergirded by illiteracy to philosophy. And so I do Latinx studies through the lens of history, theology, and philosophy. Mm-hmm. And Latinx studies, um, which, by the way, the term Latinx I have some issues with the term. Yeah, um, yeah. I, yeah, I, I don't have an issue with what the term intends. I think mm-hmm. I like what Latinx or uh, they either say Latinx or Latinx. I've mm-hmm. heard it multiple ways. I think yeah. what Latinx studies is trying to do is uh, break the male-centered language of Latino, mm-hmm. uh, clean it up, because we used to say Latino, Latina, or Latino, or Latina, or like put those okay. two letters together. Um, it's also trying to break the binaries, the gender binaries. Yeah. So I appreciate what the term is doing. And so I use it. But I actually have a problem on a very basic level in that you can't translate Latinx hmm. to Spanish. Okay. You, there's no way to pronounce the way that's spelled in English. There's no way to pronounce it in Spanish. It's entirely unpronounceable. And mm. so I actually have an issue with that uh, issue. Uh, we're working on other terms, but I, I, I'm also, uh, I play, you know, I'm within a guild. And so I want to honor what the guild is giving me. And the guild has moved away from Latino or Latino. <laughs> and I think Latinx, and I, and I, again, I appreciate what it's yeah. trying to do, except I have an issue with it. So I, I, yeah. I work in historical and comparative theology. And the comparative piece has to do with, being able to do Christian theology while being radically open to the wisdom of other religious traditions. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the Latinx piece comes in because I'm able to, first of all, do all that informed by the Latinx theological and philosophical tradition, but also I'm able to hone in on the Latinx, Latin American and Caribbean uh, theological and philosophical traditions and bring that, to bear on theology, comparative theology, historical theology, and philosophy. So it's really an exciting kind of mix of disciplines that I, that I work in, and that kind of bring joy to my day work, uh, my my daily work that I do. So uh, I enjoy doing it. Awesome. Now, as you probably noticed, and we've talked about my podcast, this podcast is called Future Christianity. And when I think about the future Christianity, I mean, I'm not nearly as educated or well-versed in this as you are, but to me at least, it seems like we can't help but talk about the future of Christianity without talking about uh, communities of color, especially Christianity south of the border. Uh, 
talk more about that if you can. Uh, sure. Well, I let me start by saying I don't think anyone is an expert on the future of Christianity in the sense yeah. that I think we can all make the best proposals of what might happen. But mm-hmm. I'm not a determinist. I don't think, yeah. for example, I don't think simply because, quote unquote, and I put it in air quotes, Christianity is dying, air quotes, in mm-hmm. Europe and North America, that it's going to continue to die. And that because it's blossoming in Brazil, is going to continue to blossom in Brazil. I don't think that's the case. Mm. I, you, we've all seen enough history to know that yeah, yeah. for a slew of reasons, yeah. Christianity could be dying here and then flourish, could be flourishing here and then die. So that's the first yeah. thing. The second thing, I'm not, I don't, I don't believe in automatic progress. So here okay, I'm against, sure. and here, here I'm against the liberal tradition in a sense that okay. I think a lot of liberal traditions kind of accept Hegel's notion of spirit, that mm-hmm. human history capital H history is moving towards this place in which uh, we will know ourselves fully and that we will, uh, to use Christian language, we will see God face to face, et cetera, et cetera, Mm -hmm. that the progress is up. All we need to see is uh, in this country to see how we've gone from whatever we went to, to the current president that we have now to know that progress is never automatic. Um, All we have to do is look at, the years of reconstruction in the South to know sure, um, sure. that it's not automatic. All we have to do is look at the 1970s reaction to the civil rights of the 1960s. And we know that. So in another sense, I would, I would want to caveat that I'm not sure we should just kind of hang up the hat in the North, nor mm-hmm. automatically assume that the South will be the future. Now in the immediate future, it looks like Asia, and Africa and Latin America are going to be fine in terms of the Christian mm-hmm. presence. And in the immediate future, it looks like uh, Europe, uh, m- much further along in this trajectory than the United States, but also the United States is en route to having to do some little soul searching about what Christianity yeah. should be looking like. I would first say that um, globalization um, changes the way we talk about North and South, right? Okay. So yeah. what I mean by that is uh, immigration is a tricky thing because mm-hmm. um, immigration also means that Christianity is flourishing in Europe and in North America. Um, hmm. You know, I yeah. always I always talk about um, this book, and I want to say it's Diana Eck who was talking okay. about the Shinto temple okay. and how the Shinto temple shows this religious pluralism. Now, first of all, I want to celebrate that. I want Shinto mm-hmm. temples nearby. I think the engagement would be good for the Shintos. It'd be great for Christians to learn from yeah. each other, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what she doesn't tell you in this book is that it's hard to get to the Shinto temple. You have to get around this really big building to get to the Shinto temple. The really big building is a huge Chinese Presbyterian church. Hmm. Um, <laughs> enormous <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Chinese, Chinese-American Presbyterian church. And so uh, in Kiev, the largest uh, church there, uh, the pastors from West Africa, hmm. um, you, you go to other places in London and in Paris and the expressions of faith in Chicago. In Chicago, if there's a Catholic church in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood, the church meets 500 to 1,500 to 2,000 every Sunday. Yeah. Um, so um, is Christianity dying in the North? Not exactly. I mean, but mm-hmm. then again, part of the rhetoric is when we say Christianity of the North, we don't include communities yeah. of color living in the North. Yeah, um, yeah. We kind of say Christianity is dying 
when we should say, well, maybe white Christianity in these contexts are dying. Yeah. Um, but we shouldn't say Christianity is dying. So that's been a, a pet peeve of mine when people talk about, oh, that Christianity is dying, because clearly uh, my communities apparently don't count. Um, mm-hmm. Because if you look at these communities, these churches are doing very, very well. Um, again, that doesn't mean that they're going to be doing well tomorrow. Yeah. But I mean, at the moment, they're doing surprisingly well. Uh, yeah. And so, so I do think we have to break that binary only because because of immigration and, and these other things. I, I, you know, for example, I I think Chicago is part of Latin America. Interesting. And okay. It's so far north, right? Yeah. Uh, it's so far from the Rio Grande, but if you if you count the numbers, um, sure. you know, it constitutes what we call Latin America. Uh, New yeah. York is Latin yeah, America. Yeah. I was just thinking um, that. Most yeah. of Texas is Latin America. Yeah. And so I think we also have to be care- not be careful, at least understand what we mean by the term Latin American and recognize that mm-hmm. if we mean by that, then places even like Montreal and Toronto could be called Latin America in a sense. Um, mm. The United States is one of the largest Spanish-speaking countries in the world. Yeah. And people don't, for some reason, don't, they don't click. So I think I think part of that for me is when we say Christianity is dying, I, all I ask for those who critique this is to say, who are we counting here when we say Christianity is mm, dying? And who are yeah. we missing out? Because I do think we're not seeing the whole picture. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned kind of how uh, these communities are reshaping, um, influencing at least, you know, communities of faith in, in, these, new, in these new communities they are part of. What are some of the ways that that's happening? Um, well, I mean, I think, for example, um, uh, you see, you, for example, let, let's take, for example, first of all, there's very active presence, right? Um, yeah. that I think part of what Christians are called to do is just to be present. Um, mm-hmm. and I know that sounds kind of maybe pedantic or shallow, but it really yeah. isn't. Um, mm-hmm. if, if our theology is based on this doctrine of incarnation, then embodying presence is actually the primordial act of what it means to be a Christian. So I yeah. think the fact that, that you go to these churches that were once dying, and now you see, um, for example, when I lived in California, a church that was a, a Thai Presbyterian church. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the writing was in Thai, and I couldn't understand it. The fact that there's vitality there on Sunday mornings and vitality yeah. there on Wednesday nights, that for people who drive by, I think that alone should yeah. matter, yeah, and should speak volumes. I think there's this notion of presencing. Um, and while I think that the abuses of, for example, some medieval architecture, where you're spending all this money on beautiful buildings where people go hungry, I think there's some problems there, and not just medieval. You know, yeah, yeah, contemporary reality. Yeah, you can make the same criticism. I do think that there's something about putting a placeholder, a building, for example, that says. Christians worship here. And so mm-hmm. I think the fact that now you're getting very active Sunday mornings in some of these places where Sunday mornings have gone a little cold, I think that alone um, is is one way. The second way, I think, for example, I think there's a sort of um, the rise of the Pentecostal movement, okay. which began in the Latin American city of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it, you know, a lot of the the Christianity in the two thirds world has a charismatic feel to it. 
Not all of it, but some of it does. For example, in disciples in Puerto Rico, to be a disciple in Puerto Rico is to be charismatic. And, sure. you know, here in the United States, we say that among disciples, for example, and everybody looks at you like you're nuts. Yeah. Well, no, but in, in Puerto Rico, if you're a disciple, two things. One, the table is important to you. And two, you're probably charismatic. Um, and so for me, I think there's also a sense in which that presencing that's taken off in the global north mm-hmm. um, is then now asking us to rethink what we think about God, what we think about Jesus, because these new communities are bringing a different set of questions, a different mm-hmm. set of preoccupations, a different yeah. um, uh, loci or, or locations from where they do their theological thinking. And so mm-hmm. I do think it's it's exciting not just to be a pastor today. As a theologian, it's very exciting to see the ways in which theology is being done either afresh or a sort of odd retrieval of something from the past that was actually quite nice that we lost. Um, so I think that there's that other sense in which uh, the presencing then also leads to a series of postures and questions that previously weren't even thought of. Um, Interesting. That weren't even that weren't even part of of our thinking. Um, I think, for example, um, my advisor when I was at McCormick, he wrote an article many years ago on Moses as Latino. And his oh. argument was, yeah, yeah, yeah. His argument was that um, the, the word that we translated into stutter, uh-huh. um, the Hebrew actually says, I'm slow of speech. That's huh. really what it says. Yeah. And so if you're monolingual, which most of the folks who were doing the scholarship were, mm-hmm. you, you'd say, okay, that's a stutter. Okay. Well, but then if you're Latino raised in the U.S., you know one thing to be true, and I'm one who was raised in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Your Spanish is bad. Okay. Um, it's not as good as somebody who's raised in Mexico or Peru or uh, Paraguay. Um, it isn't because you're surrounded by English and you're preserving Spanish. Yeah. And so the, the act of preserving, it gets jumbled. Sometimes you throw English words in there. And so then you go to Puerto Rico and you're, you're talking and what you thought was Spanish. And people are like, I don't understand what you're saying. Hmm. Um, Moses was Hebrew raised among Egyptians. Yeah. So when he says I'm slow of speech, what he, what he really said was, I speak broken Hebrew. Oh, interesting. And it changes the dynamic of how we read Moses. Moses is a second generation bilingual Hebrew mm-hmm. uh, told to speak for Hebrews whose language Hebrew is their dominant language. So here's somebody who yeah. doesn't dominate Hebrew yeah. asked to be the leader of the Hebrew people. Um yeah. Notice that's that's a biblical example, but the same thing mm-hmm. happens in theology and in ethics. The presence of this other uh, calls us to rethink some pieces that we've kind of taken for granted in Christian faith and life. Wow, that's a fascinating perspective on there. Um, I want to ask too, just as I think historically Christianity, as I've studied it and learned about it so much and so often. Christianity has been used to uh, by those in power to oppress. And what are what are the ways that you still see that happening today? I, I mean, you mentioned language. To me, that 
that comes to mind as as a possible example. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, and this is my comparative hat. Uh, on yeah, for a second. I think all religions have to be careful when the reins of power are given to them. Yeah. Uh, my uh, colleague, my new colleague, Rabbi Mikva, Rachel Mikva, she's um, does Jewish studies at Chicago Theological Seminary. Just uh-huh. wrote a book, and I bought it, but I haven't. St- I I know the introduction because I skimmed the introduction, and she talked about it in a podcast elsewhere. Yeah. But she talks about how religious ideas are inherently dangerous, hmm. and what she means by that is because religious ideas come with it the zeal of conviction. Yeah, And she says, conviction is good, but here are the dangers of conviction, right? From convictions we get, uh, we get crusades, we get inquisitions, we get uh, human yeah. slave trade of West Africans into the so-called Americas. I mean, you get a bunch of stuff. Um, yeah. And so I do think, I want to go, I actually want to um, support that claim from uh, Dr. Mikvah mm-hmm. that I think it's always on the verge of oppression because religious ideas require some sense of ultimacy and some sense of, yeah. excuse me, of conviction that that I think. Um, uh, so you always at the, you always there's a thin line between authentic conviction and um, and oppression. I think. Yeah, I, I was. Think, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to I think I was just reading something to that same thing. I think it was in Brian McLaren's new book. I'm having him, uh, I think he's going to be going on after you, uh, but he said something oh, nice. like, you know, people who are willing to die for something are also willing to hurt and harm potentially over that same thing. Yeah, no, no, that's exactly it. And, and, it's, and but here's the trickiness. You don't want to lose some of that conviction, right? You, yeah. You know, that's conviction a hard rub. Is, Right, right. It's transforming. Um, it's part of um, part of the energy for transformation, for mm-hmm. good transformation. Uh, and so I think that I think that Christianity, whenever it's places of power, has to has to kind of constantly hold a mirror to itself. I think this is why the comparative theological work I do is important in the sense that yeah. it puts me in the position to learn from the religious of it. Um, so in class this semester, one of my classes, I, I uh, had students read The Christian Imagination by uh, William uh, Willie uh, James Jennings, uh, okay. who writes about race and, and the so-called discovery of the new world and how mm-hmm. uh, racism and religion all played together uh, in, in this new milieu to oppress certain groups over others. And one mm-hmm. of his critiques is that Christianity when it came to the West, um, position itself as the perpetual teacher. Mm, and so yeah. everybody else who was not white, European, and Christian, everybody else was placed in the role of perpetual learner. Yeah. And so it creates this um, this juxtaposition of, well, we can only learn from. So uh, I that is still alive today. When I was going through my PhD program, as open, as progressive as it was, there was mm-hmm. a certain set of, let's just name it, white guys I was expected to know. Yeah, yeah. But my white colleagues were not expected to know Miguel de Unamuno, yeah. eh, Jose Martí, 
uh, Jose Gauss, um, uh, Gloria Anzandua. I mean, they, they were not expected, to, right? Because there's a sense in which this perpetual teacher and perpetual learner are put the same. We see it today. Yeah, yeah that's we fair. See it, yeah, we see it today in, for example, white congregations that nest uh, congregations of color. Yeah. And the behavior patterns where the white congregation sees itself perpetually as mm-hmm. the teacher and always pits these communities of color as the learners, as if they guys have yeah. learned. And never do they bother to say, let me walk away from the proverbial blackboard, sit mm-hmm. in the desk, and you come up here and you teach me something. That's never, that never crosses your mind. So I think yeah. that alone, I, 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 Jennings' book was very helpful here. I think we have to admit that that's there. And if that's mm-hmm. there, then a whole slew of other things um, become justifiable um, from yeah. preemptive strikes in Iraq to yeah. um, to uh, uh, creating a sort of political Christian political vision where mm-hmm. the unborn are to be unilaterally protected, but black lives can still be shot in the streets. And somehow, yeah. uh, it, you know, we don't preach about it on Sundays, but we right, preach about right. the same things sometimes. Well, I love that image um, you talk about of the, the blackboard and that the whole, th- I'm thinking about just your kind of broader example of like the community of color that come rents from an older white church. Uh, yeah, it's, it's so, I, I really can understand how where you're coming from. Talk about, uh, let's kind of play with that image. You know, if we could switch positions and, and the, the church of color, the community of color was at the blackboard and the white church was sitting and learning, what do you think the white church most needs to learn or could learn from that church of color? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I can, <laughs> see why, I can see why you have these podcasts. Uh, you, you, ask, you ask good questions. They've all been good. This, one's, Thank this, you. One's the, this is the golden question. Um, you're right. And I think... I think part of it is is not so much a specific set of rules, but I think mm-hmm. that churches of color can help white churches help see something that white churches have made invisible, mm. and that is their own whiteness. Yeah. And I think because whiteness has become normative. Yep. So you hide whiteness in this normativity. Mm-hmm. And so then the Thai Presbyterian church becomes the eccentric oddball. Yeah. When in fact, in actuality, when we, rip the, when we read the Gospels and we follow Jesus, we realize, wow, the oddball is really this white expression of Christianity that's really left some things uh, that is really distorted the, the mm-hmm. message of Jesus beyond biblical recognition. So I think that the best thing that we can do is reveal to our white sisters and brothers the ways that whiteness insidiously plays into their thinking in ways that are to their detriment, not just to our detriment as people of color. Obviously, they hurt us. Just ask yeah. any black mother that has to send her child to school hoping that the child will come back home. Yeah. Um, but it hurts white people too. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. And it and so I think the best thing is that it reveals whiteness to white people mm. and allows the, allows white people to see whiteness for what it really is. Yeah. Um 
And so, you know, I, I think that that's the best thing that will come out of the, the Blackboard uh, conversation uh, when people of color are given the opportunity to teach and mm-hmm. white congregations uh, become vulnerable enough to say, let's learn. That would be a that me that'd be a pretty good first step too. Just saying, hey, let's learn, let's trade spots. Yeah, well, and you know, this invisibility is important. So I, I read this book by a philosopher, uh, Paul C. Taylor. It's called Race: A Philosophical mm-hmm. Introduction. It's now in its like third edition or something. It's a good text. Okay. And in one of the chapters, he talks about this notion of invisibility, and he gives it three criteria. He says one, he says particularly with African Americans. Uh, he's working with Du Bois or Du Bois, depending how you say it. I say Du Bois. Um, this notion mm-hmm. of double consciousness, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and p- part of um, part of um, what uh, Taylor's trying to get at is there's this notion in which black persons in this country are invisible. And what I mean by that is we never see black persons for who they really are. Instead, mm. because of the way that society is constructed, we build a caricature of blackness, mm-hmm. a caricature of what quote unquote, the black man or the black woman is supposed to be. And we never sure. see that black person or that we see the caricature we've built of them, but we never get past it to actually see a, a human um, uh, here. Now I'm going to bring Miguel de Unamuno, the, one of my favorite Spanish yeah. philosophers, the, the, the flesh and blood that's there. We don't see it. We only mm. see the caricature. And yeah. Ralph Ellison's novel, in, in, Invisible Man is a prime example. of this. The second invisibility comes from because it's been the race discussions in this country have been so dominated by black and white that anybody mm-hmm. who's not black or white gets lost in that conversation about race. So Latinos like yeah. me get lost because everything's black, white, black, white. So what yeah. do you do with Brown, for example? What do you do mm-hmm. with natives who've been here before any of us were here? Mm-hmm. Um, they become invisible. And then he says the third invisibility, which is what I mentioned that whites, uh, the whiteness is invisible to whites. Um, mm-hmm. And that there there needs to be this sort of unearthing. Let me show you your whiteness. And yeah. I actually think that's going to be a liberating act for white persons mm. if they so choose to take that vulnerable risk of kind yeah. of unearthing their so-called normative whiteness, which is really not that normative. It's actually a power play to kind of dictate the discourse and what's legitimate, what's not legitimate. So I think if mm-hmm. we change for a moment, and allow others to be the teacher, um, then I think that that could be a form of liberation for, for white Christians. Not so much for white Christianity, because I, I don't care to preserve white Christianity, because oh, it's, yeah. it's too tied, it's too sure, tied to nationalisms. Sure. But yeah. white Christians, definitely, my, my, my friends in faith uh, definitely want to be able to yeah. offer that as a way to move forward. Yeah. Well, we, we need to take a break. Uh, I hope for our listeners you can understand what a rich treasure uh, Jose is. And Jose, I really appreciate your time here. Let's take a break and come back with some closing questions because Jose is a teach tonight. (laughs) We don't want to take up his time. It's not like we haven't all said it enough lately. These are unprecedented times. COVID-19 has upended the way we do life, community, and church. As church leaders, we find ourselves disoriented. Outreach, connection, cultivating a sense of team among church staff and creatives, nothing works like it did before. Torn Curtain Arts gets it, and we're here to help. We strengthen the creative soul of churches. It's why we exist. And in these times, 
We have dedicated ourselves to helping churches set up live streaming solutions and assisting with live events. We also provide coaching for worship leaders, as well as substitute worship leading for both in-person and online events. Contact us at torncurtainarts.org and let's chat about how we can keep you connected to your creativity in this season and grow your community. All right, we're back with Reverend Dr. Jose Francisco Morales Torres. And uh, Jose, I was thinking about this actually during our break. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, and whatever the whatever the term is, you probably know better than I do. My ordination meetings, preordination stuff. I think that's one of the things you mentioned. I think that's one of the things you mentioned about me or observed about me was uh, my asking questions. So it's kind of it's a fun memory. And I yeah, I'll yeah. say I appreciate your uh, your spiritual. Uh, mentorship and guidance, even from a distance through these years. So well, it's, uh, well, it's an you. honor uh, to have you on and, and to continue this relationship and conversation. So um, let's take these, uh, like I said, I, I mentioned, I think you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you like to. Uh, but if you're Pope for a day, what do you want to do? Anything? Pope anything? for a day? Yeah. Oof. <laughs> Uh, abolish the papacy. <laughs> <laughs> Jose is a good disciples of Christ pastor. You're like the third disciple I've had on here who said some form of that. That's good. Well, you know, I I actually I actually I actually theologically understand the notion of papacy. Mm -hmm. I just know that around the oh, 14 13 14 1500s there was conversations around balancing that papacy with some notion of conciliarism. And mm. so uh, I, I should probably clarify that I would abolish the, what papacy has become. Okay. Uh, I would, uh, I would want to see more of this conciliarism that was basically in effect kind of squelched uh, to come back as a tempering uh, device. If you want to have a central figure, by all means, uh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not, but I would abolish what it has become now. Um, sure, sure. Even if you want to keep a sort of guiding first among equals or mm -hmm. a first primate, that's go nuts, but not, <laughs> awesome. not what it is. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, a historical theologian or Christian figure you would want to meet or bring back to life? Origin. Oh, okay. Uh, or, origin. Um, Origin has a sad ending yeah. um, in that he dies a very celebrated uh, figure in the Christian tradition. And mm -hmm. a few generations later, there's these group of originists that are ruffling, ruffling the feathers of some of the key yeah. religious and social leaders at the time. And so they, uh, they uh, animatize uh, Origin and exhume his bones and yeah. burn him and declare him a heretic after he died. Um, and yet... Yeah, that's rough. It, yeah, and yet origin is part of all theology. Um, hmm. Bringing together philosophy and theology, though there's predecessors with his own Clement of Alexandria, Justin Martyr. I think he, yeah. he was the first to synthesize it. He was the first to give a systematic account of the Christian faith. So systematic theology starts with him. The the notion, which for us, we take for granted that we have to read the Bible to do Christian theology. I know that sounds so like, duh, of course. Right, right. 
he established that. He says above all, he says above all else, attend to the reading of the scriptures. Huh. So uh, I would I would love to meet uh, Oregon, uh, hands down. Good. I like that. Um, what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? Uh, uh, the North American context, I suppose. You can answer how you like. Um, uh, I think they'll remember, sadly enough, how selfish we were. Hmm. Well, let's uh, let's end on a more hopeful note then, Jose. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've kind of reframed a question that I had for you. What do you hope for the future of Christianity? Um, I I hope that whatever dies today doesn't die in vain. What I mean by that is, mm, yeah, um, if we believe in the sort of faith of the resurrection, then we need to see all this dying as necessary, even if not good, necessary, and hope that the mulch of what dies feeds new life yeah. in Christ somewhere else. And that's going to take serious and risky reimagining of what does it mean to be Christian in the 21st century. Um, but I do have hope. Uh, you know, I don't take um, the, fra- the the verses from Scripture, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I, I don't take mm. those lightly. I, I, I do believe the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. The gates of hell might prevail against this church and mm. that church over there yeah, and yeah. this iteration of Christianity. Yeah. But that, that resurrection is, is always just around the corner. Yeah. Um, that, that's ultimately my hope. And that even from the decaying mulch of what used to be, that a new flower of faith could be born. Uh, yeah, that's my hope. And, and, and it's, a ser- it's a serious hope. Not a, I won't even be Christian. I mean, that's really a serious hope hmm. for me. Interesting. Well, I have so much more I'd love to ask on that, but I want to respect your time. But let's, uh, folks, hopefully you've got a taste of just uh, this guy's wisdom and uh, I don't know what else to say, uh, expertise. Uh, That's not the good word, but, you know, uh, Jose, tell folks where they can find out more about you. And then this, like, if you haven't seen him preach, like, are you preaching anytime, even if it's on Zoom? Folks can uh, catch one of your messages. I mean, m- mind you, this is going to air sometime in the future. So uh, w- do you preach regularly, A, and B, like yeah. where can they find out maybe past messages? You know, um, there are actually some very recent messages uh, out there, including I just preached the um, installation service for the new conference minister of the United Church of Christ conference here in Illinois, and she's a good okay. friend of mine for many years. And so that's on Facebook somewhere. And uh you know, if you if you Google me, which now has become a verb, apparently, yeah, if you search yeah. me on the on the on the in, on all the internets, um, <laughs> you'll find a sermon here or there. I don't preach that often anymore. Um, 
I kind of miss it, uh, yeah. but I'm also kind of busy. So uh, yeah. not not even not having to be prepping for Sunday helps me clears my schedule to do other things. And yeah. so, um, but yeah, no, I, I still preach, and um, you can find me on most social media platforms uh, if you choose to follow me, of course. And then I've got a book coming out um, next year. I don't know exactly with Lexington Books. Okay. So you can start looking um, there, a uh, book on wonder, uh, using wonder as a starting point for new theological anthropology. And so that should be coming out soon, uh, next year sometime. So uh, be on the lookout for that when it comes out. Awesome. Well, Jose, thanks so much for your time. Really enjoyed the conversation and uh, wish you all the best there in where are you? Where are you? Chicago. You are. South, Chicago. That's what south side of Chicago. South back side home. Of Chicago. Back, back home. Back home. Back home. Awesome. So thank well, you so much for having me. And yeah. thank you for opening up space for me. And thank you. And I'm glad to hear that your spiritual gift of questioning is is being exercised uh, and, and offering much uh, wisdom in the world. So I, I'm glad that you're still doing that. Awesome. Well, may God's peace be with you. Also with you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. But hey, before you go, do us a favor. Subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people. Thanks, and go in peace.